What's up, Bruin Bible listeners? This is your host, Will Decker. I uh, wanted to reach out and say thank you guys for all the listens, all the love. We see it on social media. We see it on YouTube. It has been sensational. And we want to encourage you guys, if you guys are enjoying the podcast and liking it, that you guys subscribe and like it, uh, whether it's on YouTube, on our UCLA LAFB channel, or the Bruin Bible, uh, to subscribe either through Spotify, Apple Podcasts, however you guys listen and react to it because it's going to allow us to do much greater things in the future. We're creators. We want to be giving the best Bruins content to all of our UCLA listeners. The only way we can do that is if we have a fan base that is locked in and helping us out. So we appreciate you guys. We love you guys. If you guys have been liking it, please help us out with a like and subscribe. UCLA to USC. Well, Thriller, first of all, always a pleasure to do this with you. It was uh, to our, our listeners out there. It was so fun to, to hang out with you the other night. You and I got a chance to to go to Poly Pavilion together and, and catch the game. We sort of ran into different friends and colleagues and, and the Bruin family while we were there. And uh, just a wonderful time you and I had. I wish it was under better circumstances. The basketball team, unfortunately, <laughs> lost to, to Cal State Northridge uh, and and snapped the 29-game home winning streak. But um, better days ahead for for both sports, uh, hopefully. And tough day today, Will, obviously, with, with Humphreys and Ramsey. I think Humphreys just such a solid rotational player in the secondary, a guy that can uh, really sort of plug in into sort of different packages, different formations, uh, but the one that I think stings for us so much is Kamari Ramsey. And you said it best, Will. I think someone we thought of as, as truly the anchor of this secondary moving forward in 2024 and beyond, the captain of the secondary, someone to really take over that role from Blaylock of really putting everyone in the right formations, in the right situations, and really kind of complementing the growth that would take place uh, with the front seven. So tough to see this happen. I think we had a sense that that USC was in the running, just given the the relationship with DeAnton Lynn, and it just goes to show that that so many of these guys are are sort of anchoring right now on familiarity with coaches, opportunities with nil. It's just the decision making uh, parameters have changed so much in in college football with players. Just even from last year to this year, will it just feels like this is kind of the first year of just a new wave, a new paradigm of thinking of things. And so it's a brave new world out there and uh, really unfortunate to see Kamari Ramsey go. It's going to be a big loss for this team next year. But uh, as always, we we wish our former Bruins the very best. The sky is the limit for Kamari Ramsey. I think he's destined for great things, not just at USC, but I think there's a very bright NFL potential there. When you talk about his size, his length, his explosiveness, his ability to hit, his mind, his ability to read different coverages. He's sort of a do-it-all uh, DB and and someone that particularly at that safety position uh, is going to really thrive in the Anton Lynn system. Yeah, and I think, you know, you actually called me back after we had our initial phone call about Ramsey leaving. It was two or three minutes later, you go, hey, hey, bud, Humphreys is leaving too. Yeah. And I nearly <laughs> dropped my plate of food. I was at Burger She Road in Hollywood, one of my favorite burger places. 
and just nearly dropped my burger, you know, flat on the ground just because I was shocked that it came so quickly. They were a package deal. It appeared. And, you know, we had the tough conversation, man, where it was like, are we, you know, kind of the money ball A's to what the Yankees are in town? Are we, you know, Bayern Leverkusen going to Bayern Munich, uh, you know, when it comes to soccer, just kind of those transfers that go through there. So it's just, we're kind of like a farm system. It feels like, and I know we got some of their guys last year, you know, Jay Toya has been great. Uh, you know, Kyle Ford is a guy that, you know, you and Rai, you know, love to death. And is a guy that I hope is coming back next year to be able to make some plays for UCLA. But those are few and far between, I feel like, with UCLA compared to what it goes down at USC. Can you kind of just go more into this thought process of kind of us maybe being, you know, uh, a little brother, if you will? I hate to say those words, but it just kind of feels like it at times. Yeah, well, I mean, it's a really good point. And, and I know we're going to kind of get into some some articles and stuff that are going to, I think, touch on some bigger topics as well. But I just think that this is a new world of college football and the, the nil and the transfer portal legislation of the last two years, I think it's taken two years for everyone to kind of figure out a strategy around it when it comes to resources, when it comes to time, when it comes to process. And now it just feels like this has become an unbelievable marketplace moving forward. And just the analogy now to college football and major league baseball is just so significant because it's the two sports that we all care about that are not salary capped. And we're seeing it in Los Angeles here with the Dodgers, uh, with Otani and now Yamamoto just signed tonight. You know, so the, the Dodgers have spent over a billion dollars on two players uh, for the foreseeable future. And in college football now, it, it, again, it comes down to the willingness of the mega donors to pay and how many of those mega donors you have and what is their willingness to pay. That is really the, the, the economics of this. And so how UCLA football wants to move forward in terms of managing this, it is going to have to be to think differently around talent acquisition, talent development. They have to sort of think now like more of a smaller market team in a bigger market because you have two choices, right? Well, moving forward, you as an ecosystem, as a donor base, alumni, boosters, everyone that cares so much about this wonderful university, you either have to up the payroll and you have to sort of donate more and get on par with these other schools that are paying a lot of money. And in doing so, you have to prioritize football over other things that your university may care about in academics and research and service in other endeavors, or you have to navigate around not having as much money as your competitors. And so that is going to require thinking differently, going to different pools of talent. It may be more of the JUCO route. It may be more of the D1AA route, you know, the FCS route, and then really kind of getting raw athletes in and really developing them over time. It may be you know, again, more of the back end of the transfer portal. So I think this is an offseason where UCLA is going to have to really think about how they want to play in this brave new world of college football. But it does feel like there's a strategy here of the A's, of the Royals, of the Twins um, against the likes of the Bamas and the Georges and the LSUs and the USCs that feel more like the Yankees and the Dodgers and the Red Sox and the Mets. Yeah. And, you know, it's just tough to see that because you hate to lose these guys, as we mentioned. But to lose them to SC is just – it hurts a lot more than the traditional routes. But not all bad news today. Spencer Holstead decided to come back. Uh, you know, former Purdue guard coming back into Big Ten play next year when UCLA joins 
the Big Ten officially. I think this was huge. I mean, the offensive line was very inconsistent, but I think it was more tackles-based, if I'm being honest with you. The interior of the line with him and Duke Clemens, I think, was the strong part of the line. This is huge because we need the offensive line to improve, and we're going to be talking a little bit more about that later. How big is it that Holstage withdrew his name from the transfer board? We thought we were going to lose this guy again as early as five or six hours ago, and then he pulls back in for UCLA. Oh, it's massive, Will. I mean, you're talking about the anchor, really, of the offensive line moving forward next year. And when we talk about going into this year, what were the challenges? What was what was sort of the linchpin that, that you and I really felt that was going to be the greatest barometer, the swing of barometer for this team's success this year? It was offensive line. And, and lo and behold, that's how it played out. So if Holstige left it would just be another huge piece of the puzzle that would need to be solved going into 2024. Now with Holstige there, not only do you have an anchor, but you have a person now who can help with recruiting in the transfer portal of other offensive linemen build that depth so Ethan Garbers can be protected next year. So the zone running game with TJ Harden is going to open up the way we want it to. So guys like J. Michael Sturdivan, if he chooses to come back, and guys like Kyle Ford, will have the requisite time to be able to find space in the the second level of the defense down the field. So absolutely massive victory here for UCLA. Holstege, I think, is going to serve not only as the linchpin of the offensive line next year, I think he's going to be a captain. I think he's going to be a huge leader in the locker room. And it just cannot be overstated how important it is for him to be back. Yeah, and I know the guy that's happiest about this right now is Ethan Garber is the guy that's going to be protected by Holstein. So we love that coming in. Madman, you had an article come out today that we'll say it was a little divisive with the fan base, but I want you to give more context on it. I think I got your angle very clear where, you know, UCLA trying to build a sustainably winning program that's at the top is very difficult, you know, to do so when you have such high academic standards and how hard it is to admit some of these people. I'm going to give you the floor on this one to kind of explain your stance and, you know, what you thought about the article you wrote and, you know, what are your overall, you know, opinions and facts of this article that you put out? Yeah, well, you know, I, I wrote an article today around, you know, Chip Kelly's tenure as it pertained to books and ball and uh, TJ Altimore, who's on Twitter, really, uh, really bright young man who does a lot in kind of the data visualization space. Um, you know, he's he's an investment banker, management consultant, but also loves to do, uh, you know, kind of sports analytics. So I, I encourage everyone to sort of follow him on Twitter. He's got terrific stuff. He had come up with a visualization on the hardest schools uh, in terms of admission to get into by conference. And, you know, he included the Ivy League. He included all of the, the big, uh, you know, FBS conferences and major brands. And when you look at that data, what you see is that UCLA is the fifth hardest school to get into of any of the major schools that play Division One football. And when you compare UCLA to the top five hardest schools against the likes of a Stanford or a Duke or a Northwestern or a Vanderbilt, and you take their record over the last six years since Chip Kelly has been the coach of UCLA, Chip Kelly has the best record out of all of those five schools over the last six years. And when you extend that to a top 10 in terms of, you know, how hard it is to get into the school from a selectivity and admissions perspective, you add the likes of a Cal, you add the likes of a Boston College, you add the likes of a Georgia Tech. Guess what? 
Chip Kelly still has a better record than all of those schools the last six years. The only two schools in the top 10 that Chip Kelly doesn't have as good a record as is USC and Notre Dame in terms of top 10 selectivity. And I think there's a couple fundamental reasons why uh, they are significantly better on the field than, than UCLA, both of which I argue is out of the control of the head football coach. And the first is because both of those universities are private, they have an ability to modify admissions criteria for their football players in in as uh, any sort of manner as they so choose. And they can do so under kind of the veil of secrecy because they are private. They don't have to report to any public body. They don't have to report to the government. They don't have to report to any sort of state legislature. And so they have that knob to be able to turn to bring in top athletes and relax their admissions quota accordingly in a way the likes of UCLA and Cal simply cannot. Being public universities, they have to disclose all of their statistics, all of their policies to the UC regions, to the state legislature. And so it's a very different animal there. And second, USC and Notre Dame have won championships in college football since the inception and the modernization of the sport. I mean, when you go all the way back to the 1920s and 30s, Notre Dame has won three national championships in the 20s and 30s. SC has won four national championships in the 20s and 30s. And so that culture of football being such a huge part and a priority of the overall identity and ethos of the university has translated from generation to generation of university leadership, of alumni, of boosters, and has made sure that it's remained strong over the years and over the decades. And when you flip that with UCLA, UCLA has had that rich history in basketball, but in football, now we have to be honest, having gone 25 years now without a conference championship, having gone 38 years without a Rose Bowl championship, the priorities of the university seem to have shifted, rightfully so uh, in, in many ways, on academics, on research, on service, on the medical school, on social justice. And I think the emphasis and the urgency both from university leadership as well as from alumni and boosters when it comes to football has eroded over time. And so I think it's really important that we take a step back. I think it's so easy in today's day and age to say, Chip Kelly's not getting the job done and we just need to change the coach moving forward. But I think there's just a much bigger conversation that needs to have be had with UCLA football moving forward, and that is just how much does the university want to prioritize football moving forward? Because now, with NIL, with the transfer portal, with these financial partnerships with J.P. Morgan Chase that Florida State is exploring, with just the amount of money and resources that it takes to be competitive in college football moving forward, it really requires a collective effort, not just to the head football coach, but university leadership, alumni, fans, boosters, you have to donate, you have to advocate, you have to give time, you have to give money, you have to give resources to be competitive in this day and age. And I think for a lot of fans, we we argue about Chip's win-loss record and compare it to the likes of Jim Mora and compare it to the likes of Carl Durrell and compare it to the likes of Rick Neuheisel. You know, Neuheisel, Durrell, and Mora didn't have to deal with nil and transfer portal and all of the money in college sports that is today that even was 10 years ago and they didn't have to deal with ucla being the number one public university like it was just seven years ago and so they didn't have to deal with these same competing priorities and while they may have had better recruiting classes than chip from a high school perspective i think chip's done a really great job transfer portal wise 
it still didn't translate into wins, Will. You know, New Heisel, zero conference championships. Mora, zero conference championships. Durrell, zero conference championships. So I think it's really important as fans and as viewers that we kind of take a step back and say, what is it going to take for UCLA to be uh, elite in football again? And, and what really is the definition of success? I think right now, the definition of success is eight to nine wins a year, graduating really great kids, incredible student athletes, being educators, developing these young men, both in terms of NFL players, but also as great leaders in the community. And then every third or fourth year, when those kids are juniors and seniors, there's a chance at a conference championship, or a chance at a college football playoff berth. But if it if the expectations are more than that, then more resources need to go into that. And so I think there's really a conversation here about what does success look like for UCLA football moving forward. And that conversation has to be more than just let's replace the coach. Because three, four years from now, I think we're going to be right back here where whoever the next coach potentially would be, we're going to have the same issues moving forward. So that was really sort of the lens of the argument uh, that I wanted to make uh, when it came to the UCLA football ecosystem. Yeah, and it's it's all good points. It's you know an endless cycle of spinning around if we are not able to fundamentally change as a university and what we value. And football has to be valued. You know, I'm still on the fence. You know, I, I think for me, Chip is a guy that I still would, you know, wouldn't mind seeing, seeing UCLA move on from, if I'm being honest. You know, there's a lot of issues I've had. His unwillingness to change from Azanero at the beginning of his tenure really cost him the first three or four years. You got to just be unstubborn in that way, and that's just not who he is. Yank off on kick returns. How he handled the offenses here, not even giving Keegan Jones touches. I mean, we can go on and on and on about some of the issues that we picked up with Chip. But with all that being said, I think, you know, he's won 25 games over the last two years. And I mean, we talked about with Wayne, right? There's two games each of those years you're going, we should have won that game, you know? So it should be even a higher number than the 25 wins you have. So, yes, he's done a good job and I get everything that's going on there. But, you know, if they, I agree with what you're saying. If UCLA wants to be considered as a top-tier football program, university, it's time to step up and do that. If not, please let us know. And I think in a lot of ways, they kind of let us know that just by keeping and retaining ship and kind of the silence around the whole situation. Do you think that's a fair statement, you know, given UCLA and their status? Yeah, well, I mean, I think that right now, you know, he's statistically, you know, the best quote-unquote books and ball coach in the country. When when you talk about elite academic institutions w- that are playing football, like we said, outside of USC and Notre Dame, no one has a better record over the last six years than Chip Kelly. And so if that is the definition of success, that we're going to be the best books and ball school and produce great kids, and we're going to be in that eight to nine win realm, and, and we're going to kind of compete for more every three or four years, and, then, and if that's where this has converged, I think it it seems like that's where the university is comfortable being. And I think if they are going to need to be pressured into doing more, that urgency has to come from alums and fans and advocates to say, we really want more. And so I think it's it's very interesting moving forward, Will, because when you take a step back and we can argue about schedule strength and we can argue about extra games, but you mentioned it, Will, 25 wins in his last three years. The school record for most wins over a three-year period is 29. And this is in the 105-year history of UCLA football. And so the fact that he's at 25 and the school record is 29. And even this year, we talked about no Garbers in two of the games. Last year, we talked about 
uh, you know, some of the games that were missed. You know, Dorian makes a throw against SC. You know, Dorian makes two throws, and Garbers starts two more games this year. Chip might be sitting on 29 wins over the last three years, which would be the school record. And so we can talk about schedule strength and we can talk about extra games. But the fact that it's even that close also is sort of an indicator that it's Chip has struggled. There's no question about it. I'm not saying he's the best coach in, in the country by any stretch of the imagination. But what I am saying is it's not like Mora won five Rose Bowls and Neuheisel won three Rose Bowls and Durrell won three Rose Bowls. And there's this standard that Chip isn't meeting. Chip has had a better record than Neuheisel, not quite as good a record as, as, as Durrell and Mora. There's some circumstances around why that is the case. But I think it's a lot more of a comparable argument than I think sometimes is being shared. And I think regardless of who the coach is going to be, because there has been a 25-year conference title drought, it, it goes to show, look, we've changed coaches four times. We still haven't won the conference. So it's more than just the coach. It, it's, it's the bigger picture right now. And I think the bigger picture is really where we need to address the matters. Yeah. And, you know, I think those are all great points as well. And, you know, I think for the most part, I do think Chip is the most disliked coach of those uh, out of the group that we just named. It feels like it at that level. And, you know, I think it's just his personality trying to connect through with the fan base. He doesn't put any effort into that. He doesn't care about it all. Uh, you know, we were in the press conference after the game, you know, and he's just saying, I don't read anything. I don't care about anything like that. And just that kind of turnoff mentality, you know, we've seen it affect the fan base in terms of attendance. So we've seen that really take hold. I mean, even with Mora, you know, he's averaging the most in the Pac-12 at that time when it came to fan base. People were liking what they were seeing, you know, in that early part of the product with Jim Mora. But, you know, it's just tough. I, I, I'm on both sides of the fence because I know no, it's, it's a great it's a great conversation. And I think. Yeah. That's also the the challenge there. We we have a tendency as a fan base, the first thing we want to go back to over the last 25 years is those three Mora years, right? The 2012, 2013, 2014. And and Mora had it rolling, like no question about that. And attendance was was rocking and rolling those three years. We were at 70,000 in the Rose Bowl, but he couldn't keep it up. And, you know, it, that's also a bit of a red flag that it was sort of a bubble scenario for three years. And when you look at kind of the state of college football in Los Angeles, you know, it, there was a very strong correlation that at that time that Mora won 29 games in three years, USC was on sanctions and had scholarship reduction. And so look at how we started this conversation, right, Will, of guys going to USC from UCLA. When you talk about a USC at that time that was 10 scholarships down, 15 scholarships down a year, and you look at the likes of an Anthony Barr or an Eric Kendricks or a Miles Jack, and you know you wonder what the access to those players would have been with SC at full strength, and you know you're going head to head there, and it sort of played itself out that the moment SC got to full strength again, you know, in the 2015 season, Mora took a nosedive, and Mora finished 17 and 19. He was two games under 500 those last three years, and I know there's a narrative out there. It's because he got divorced. But, you know, people get divorced in this country all the time. That's not really, to me, the correlational factor. The correlational factor was SC was on full strength again, and UCLA had to kind of compete head-to-head. And again, those procedural, institutional, historical kind of deficiencies and lack of urgency started playing itself out. And so those three more years to me in a lot of ways will we're kind of like the dot-com bubble. You know, everything kind of fell right with everything else that was going on. 
the moment kind of society corrected and, and everyone was at full strength again, Mora was two games under 500. Yeah, no, I think uh, I love the dot-com bubble tie it in there, man, talking about an era of tech that will never be forgotten. We love it. We love it. We're going to finish off with this note. I've compiled a list of things usually needs to do to be successful moving to the Big Ten next year. And I want your advice. This is going to be an article. I've, I've been workshopping the topics. I haven't written it out yet. I plan to do so in the next day or two. But here's what I've got. Top five, I'll give you my first honorable mention. Bring back J. Michael Sturdivant. This guy is a baller. You need to kind of have your big wide receiver weapon for Ethan Garbers out there. I think that's honorable mention. So he is just outside looking at the top five in. So number five, hit the transfer portal hard. And we've started that in a variety of different ways, right? We got Marcus Ratliff back from San Diego State. Rico Flores, I don't think people know how good this guy was as a prospect. This guy had narrowed his top three down. He eventually committed to Notre Dame, but it was between Notre Dame, Ohio State, and Georgia. Like, Just think about how crazy of a top three that is. And now he's on UCLA's campus. So Chip started to do some things in the transfer portal that I think will benefit UCLA. We need to get a lot more of that coming our way if we want to be successful going into next year. But he's off to a good start. I think we can all agree on that. So continue to hit the transfer portal hard. Number four for me is fix the secondary. And this could be higher. There's a lot of areas where we need a lot of help, but I'm workshopping this. And I want to hear your opinions and, you know, your thoughts on all these matters. Secondary, we just lost two guys, you know, Humphreys and our guy Ramsey. Jordan Anderson's not coming back. Alex Johnson, our most consistent secondary player, is not coming back next year. So there's a lot to work with there. I know we got Davies coming back. And I will say, the ending of that season for Kirkwood was very good. I'm excited yep. to see what we can get with Kirkwood next year. Maybe he's going to finally realize that potential and get to that four-star status as a corner that we saw in high school and we're drooling all over. But, man, we really need to get some guys into that secondary. Marcus Radcliffe, as I had mentioned earlier, that's a big help. But we need to get a little bit more guys in there. So helping to fix the secondary is my fourth option that we have. Number three. Hit the D-line. Got to get the D-line, man. We're losing a lot of talent there. You don't just replace Liatu Latus. I mean, this guy stands among the finest players that UCLA has ever produced, either offensively or defensively, for what this guy was able to contribute to the team this year. I mean, but even after Latu, and that's a big enough loss as it is, right? You're losing the Murphy Twins who are going to the NFL, which are ballers that are going to be playing on NFL Sundays. You're losing three caliber NFL players in the defensive line. And to me, I've always said this, Quarterback's most important position on the field. To me, the second most important position on the field is the people that directly affect the quarterback's job, which is the defensive line and getting after the quarterback. So in order for us to be good, especially going up against these beefier Big Ten offensive linemen that they're known for, that's the, conf that's the conference they're known for is their Big Ten offensive linemen. You got to be able to get some pass rush going there. We got to hit the portal hard on that. I like Keanu Williams. I like Toya. The interior's got a lot of potential there. But, boy, do we need some edge rushers, man. We need to get some edge rushers, some dogs, if you will, to get out there on the outside. So that's number three for me. Number two, and this is this could easily be number one, man, fixing the offensive line and their problems as a whole is gigantic to UCLA's success. It says a lot to me when we had the best defense, I would say, UCLA's had in 30 to 40 years on a Chip Kelly team that couldn't generate enough offense to get it going. Do you know what I mean? Like, that is for sure. Because that was never the problem. I mean, we talked about it for years. If we get a top 50, 60 defense with the offenses that Chip was putting out routinely with the first four or five years on campus, what he was putting out at Oregon, 
that is a team that is competing for a conference championship. And at, you know, and at the most they could be, you know, competing at the national level for a freaking college football playoff spot. So like, that is what we were talking about with how good these offenses have been for the offense to stutter that bad. The offensive line had to be abysmal. And it was this past year. I think we could all agree on that. You know, it was just terrible. The tackles could not get it figured out. We had some bright spots on the interior, as we mentioned earlier with Duke Clemens and Holstage. But man, it felt like, especially when Dante Moore was out there, he would take his three-step drop and he would be either gotten pressure in his face or he'd have to roll out to save the play for his life. I mean, it was just really chaotic, hectic, awful to watch at times with this offensive line unit. So that could easily be number one was number two. Number one, nail the defensive coordinator hires. My biggest point you got to bring into the offseason. Listen, I'd love it for it to be Ken Norton Jr. Does he want the job at this point? You know, I think he's content just being a linebackers coach at his alma mater. I think he likes it. You know, interior, like, who are we going to bring in from the already on the staff? I think there's a lot of options we could potentially tackle. You know, Ken Niamatololo, he's had a head coach experience. Would he want to get in there and, you know, take the defensive coordinator job? Uh, Ika Malloy, man. Ika Malloy is a, you know, very talented defensive line coach. He's going to have his work cut out for him this year and rebuilding and retooling that defensive line and turning into something special. Where they go with that either on, you know, people that are already on the staff or, you know, outside of the program is huge. Because like I said at the beginning of this podcast, Chip's inability to pick a good defensive coordinator has held this program back time and time again when they should have been winning nine, ten games at the beginning of his tenure with how good that offense is. This is a huge decision. You know, we were lucky enough to get DeAnton Lynn I don't think we thought we we're going to be replacing him this soon in the process. He did a one and done, you know, kind of year, but replacing that defensive coordinator is massive. So long story short, I'll give you the list again. We got to essentially hit the transfer portal as much as possible. Get the secondary, right? Get the D line, right? Offensive line, defensive coordinator hire. What do you think about that list? And talk to me about what, what you think is the best and where we should go with that. Well, first of all, Will, I love the list. And, uh, you know, very thorough, very comprehensive as, as, as you do. I mean, it was, I, I think it's a phenomenal list and all incredible points. You know, it was funny with, with the list. It's like replace secondary, replace linebackers, replace defensive line, yeah. you know, replace yeah. offensive line. You know, it, it's kind of like one of the, it, it reminds me of Jim Carrey in, in Dumb and Dumber, you know, where he kind of turns around and says, so you're telling me there's a chance, you know, yeah. <laughs> just in terms of, you know, just the vastness. Of, of all of the, the, the position groups that, that require changing. And, Will, I completely agree with you. I think the way I would frame it is, is very similar to yours, building upon what you would say. I think the secondary is, is a huge piece of the puzzle, like you talked about, and just all the losses that, that we mentioned here. We did get Addison from Oregon. Radcliffe is, is I'm going to call a soft commit right now, Will, because he's committed, but he's still taking visits. So there's no guarantee that we hold on to him from San Diego State. But I think bolstering, you know, having Addison, Davies, Kirkwood, and then you need to sort of grow out depth to be credible in the secondary. I think the big sort of overhaul is going to be in that front seven. I mean, when we talk about the front seven, that was the strength of this team. You talked about it being one of the best front sevens, if not the best front seven in the last 40 years. I mean, look at who is leaving the door here, Will. You're talking about Leatu Latu, the Murphy twins, Darius Moasau, Carl Jones Jr. I mean, there's a lot leaving. And so obviously there's Keanu Williams, there's Toya, there's Oladijo, but they really need to fill in the void now of that front seven because that front seven now, 
has gone from super strength and significantly above average to now maybe average, maybe even slightly below average if you just look at the roster right now of everyone that's left. So I think front seven is absolutely critical. I think the third element is offensive line. You said it best, Will. And just the opportunity for Ethan Garbers to have time for that running game to be able to open up. We saw it in spring ball last year, Will. It was th- that offensive line was getting moved around left and right. And it turned out it was because it was an incredible front seven um, that was moving them around, but they were still getting moved around way too much. And, and it was just still so one-sided. And we saw that appear. I mean, Garbers was not, it wasn't ineffectiveness after Coastal Carolina. Coastal Carolina, he got benched because of ineffectiveness. Everything from there on out, in terms of the musical chairs at quarterback was because of injury, because of hits, the, the hits that he took uh, against uh, Arizona, the hit that he took against Cal on that opening drive. I yeah. mean, that was all a function of not being able to protect him enough with that offensive line. So you have to emphasize that. So I would start with the secondary at number five. I'd go front seven, number four. I'd go offensive line, number three. I completely agree with you at number two with defensive coordinator. You have to get this higher right. And I think you want to be able to do it in a way that extends some continuity. And I think the one thing Chip was at least able to break away from Azanero, from the late great Bill McGovern, go younger, go more relatable, go hungrier, go more energetic, go more innovative. All of the things that DeAnton Lynn was bringing all of these pro concepts, secondary and tertiary options and looks that really confused everybody that UCLA played, including the Heisman Trophy winner and Caleb Williams. And so I think bringing someone from that ilk, that tree, uh, hopefully Chip can still channel some of his past NFL networks and NFL experiences and get someone like a DeAnton Lynn if the internal guys are not really in a position to kind of seize that job, I think is, is job, you know, primary role for Chip. And then number one, Will, is I think the thing that we talked about earlier in the show, you got to get the nil program right, you know, in the offseason. I think that to me is the number one priority for this program. Men of Westwood, the other collectives, you know, how do you align those resources? How do you create a pathway for donors and alumni and boosters to be able to give money for the football program? Because, Will, I think one thing we're seeing over these last couple of weeks with early signing day, with some of the knowledge that we have on the inside of some of these schools, with some of the things that we're hearing from our media colleagues, the importance of nil right now is still being, I think, understated publicly. These kids are looking at the opportunity to get paid significant amounts of money over the course of a year, over the course of two years, as a huge part of their decision-making. When you look at a school like Texas A&M, and we've talked about it, Will, the mass exodus that has taken place at Texas A&M is because those collectives didn't come through. Even some of the players that have left USC who were recruited there, that was a function of their nil programs not coming through when they said they would. We're seeing this consistently across the country. So that money matters. And, and like it or not, it does. And so I think, again, that nil program and getting that to a place of competitiveness, streamlining it, making it easy for, for donors and, and boosters to be involved, I think is job number one for long-term viability. Yeah, I don't disagree, man. I'm just weary with how the fan base, the people that do have to pony up and give money outside of your Wassermans or whatever, they just do not like Chip. So I agree with what you're saying. 
I think that's the way to get to national, you know, success to really achieve those goals of every four years, we get into a conference championship game. I just don't know if it will be with this head coach that we have now, you know, because I think, you know, we have, we've seen polls where he's the most unlikable coach in entire college football. We've read our Twitter mentions, like nobody likes this guy. I, I'm on the middle of the pack. You know, I did believe he should, should have been fired, you know, for some of the losses he had this year, but I'm also acknowledging, Hey, he won eight games this year. You know, he got the job done in the bowl game. You know, we got Garbers coming back. There's a chance we can win eight or nine again next year. I get it. So, like, I see both sides of the argument. I think he's got a lot of strengths. I think he's got a lot of weaknesses he's got to work on. I think that's realistic to say as somebody that covers the program. So No, well, I think that's a great point. And the one thing I'll add, and it's it's all true. It's all true of, of what you said. And, and totally, um, that is the sentiment. I think we can all feel it on a day-to-day basis. But it is interesting how history repeats itself and how history becomes very revisionist history over time. And and the reason I say that is, you know, as someone who has lived this and breathed and bleeds this school, having seen all of the different machinations of coaches and athletic directors, I go back to the Carl Durrell days and the huge criticism with Durrell back then, even before Nail and the transfer portal was he was way too stoic. He didn't show any emotion. He, he's unrelatable to the fans. He's unrelatable to the players. He may be a very nice man, but there's no fire under the belly, and he's too stoic to be effective. And he was actually got a lot of negativity for that, and he got a lot of criticism for that. And then you sort of fast forward to Rick Neuheisel, and Neuheisel was sort of the opposite, but Neuheisel then got a ton of criticism for being overly optimistic and sort of spinning everything and sugarcoating everything and almost being irresponsible with his optimism. And that upset the fan base to no end because they actually wanted to see someone who was more real and more credible in terms of their assessments of when things were going well and when things were not going well. And so then the fans turned on him pretty significantly. And then when you talk about the previous athletic director and Dan Guerrero, who did some amazing things from a business development perspective, a partnerships, a merger standpoint, he got a ton of criticism for sometimes being too political, sometimes not taking a hard line and upstand for certain sports, for certain players, for certain coaches. And so it's interesting that I don't disagree at all that Chip is very disliked with, with the fan base at this point, but we've sort of been on this trip before. You know, Darrell wasn't liked towards the end. Neuheisel wasn't liked towards the end. Guerrero wasn't liked towards the end. So this isn't anything new. You know, this is just kind of comes with the territory of being a big-time college coach. And I think my point is that history keeps repeating itself every four and five years. And at some point, it's more than just the coach because we've gone through this whole cycle now three, four, five times, and we're still without a conference championship for a quarter century, and we're still without a Rose Bowl championship for almost 40 years. Yeah, it's a fair point, man. I just think with since the Terry Donahue era, which is the golden era of UCLA football, I don't think anyone would deny that. Maybe the national championship in the 50s, but, I mean, that was well before you and I were born. So for our conscious minds, it was Terry, Terry Donahue, right? Ever since then, you've found it so difficult to recruit, build, and you know put out a consistent winner on the field. So, I mean, for a lot of reasons, you guys don't like Chip. He has achieved some nice marks, you know, under those things. And we could talk about the out-of-conference, like you said, and things like that. There has been some consistency in winning. If you could a little bit 
by a little bit. Build upon those successes. Yeah. Just get to that nine wins next year. Maybe we can get 10 two years from now when we have a senior class there. I think things can maybe go well. I'm, I'm also on the fence, as you guys know, about whether I like Chip or whether I don't. That's just the reality of the situation. I think we got to deal with him for another year. Madman, so much fun talking. So much fun, Thriller. You. One thing I'll say, Thriller, I got to give a movie reference. You know, you Please. and me, we love Please. the movie references, right? Yeah. And, uh, you know, I remember in Friday Night Lights, you know, and, and Friday Night Lights, remember Booby Miles, the great Booby Miles, and he said, you know, his line was, all I got to do is just show up, you know? And I think the, the beauty of the Donahue years with UCLA football was the school could just sell itself. It was UCLA. It was the academics. It was the campus. It was the weather. It was the opportunity to play big-time college football when recruiting was regional. All you had to do was just show up and be UCLA, and that was very successful. I think as more money and more professionalization and more endorsements and more name, image, and likeness and more transfer portal and more restrictions now have come into the sport and have made it more and more difficult to compete, no longer can you just show up and say, I'm UCLA. Now you actually have to put a lot of intentionality behind your strategy. You have to put money, you have to put time, you have to put strategy, you have to put partnerships. It, it takes a lot more to be competitive now than it did in, in the great Terry Donahue's years. And I think that's where mentally we need to be as a fan base. And, and the one thing I'll close with, Will, is it's been so interesting in terms of the interaction on Twitter because I would draw a line at about 40 in terms of the age of the fans that sort of are really split because everybody under the age of 40, think about it, 1998 was the last great year in UCLA football where we were so close, you know, the BCS, the, the Mel's V game, of course. For everyone who's 35, 40 years old, that 98 game, they were 10 years old, you know? And, and when last time you said I won a championship in basketball in 95, they were maybe seven, eight years old. So they barely remember UCLA ever being elite in football. Then when you look at folks who are above 40, 40, 50, they're talking about, look, we won three Rose Bowls in the 80s. We did all, you know, 60s, 70s, 80s was the fight with SC year in and year out. The winner would go to the Rose Bowl every year. So they have seen a whole period decades of real greatness and so what they're seeing now is shocking them to their very core and they're saying we got to be able to get back then we can very very quickly and so it's such an interesting dichotomy that all of our fans just about above the age of 40 have one perspective and all of our fans below say 30 or 35 have a completely different perspective and i think it just goes to show that the importance of staying relevant and trying to win over generations and i think that's really where this divide we're seeing and it's going to be fascinating to see how it plays out and so will i know how much of an ambassador you are for ucla i am certainly one as well we bleed it and we're going to march onwards and there will be brighter days to come brighter days to come guys make sure you're tuning in make sure you're subscribing to the podcast thank you guys man and i guess we got to close on this note football season is going to be ending here in the next few weeks Madman and I are officially going to be doing, drum roll please, basketball. We're going to be doing UCLA basketball. We are moving to a basketball podcast from Pac-12 play and on for the rest of this year. Guys, I'm so excited. You guys may not think we're qualified to talk football, but let me just tell you, we are qualified to talk basketball, man. My main man is a bigger basketball fan to my right 
than he is football. And for those that, you know, judge my credentials, man, I was calling college basketball, University of Memphis and Stanford. I know the game. I know how it goes. It's going to be a lot of fun to be talking about UCLA and, you know, maybe a tough year right now, but let's see what they can do. Maybe come back 12 time in terms of getting the season rolling. Thriller, I'm so excited about this and and really us rounding out the Bruin Bible now. And so it's going to be, we're going to have football segment. We're going to have basketball segment. We're going to talk about draft. We're going to talk about Pac-12 in-play season for basketball. And I, I can't wait. UCLA basketball is is a love of mine like no other. Going to UCLA basketball camp every year that I was a kid, getting to play on Poly Pavilion. So I uh, can't wait to start digging into basketball here, Will, in the new year as soon as conference starts. And what a ride that's going to be. I know you're such a diehard Warriors fan and a Steph Curry fan. I grew up on the Lakers and Kobe and MJ. And so it is just going to be that, that basketball is in our blood in a way that maybe even football isn't, you know, and we're yeah. so passionate about all of these sports, but there's a there's a depth of, of a basketball, kind of your first love. So can't wait to break it down with Mick and all his great suits and the vein that's coming out of his neck and, you know, what's going on with the offense and the defense. And so it's going to be really exciting to get into all of that. Man, he looks like one of Tony Soprano's cousins <laughs> up on the sideline, man. We, we love Mick out here in Westwood. Talk to you guys soon. Stay tuned for some basketball. We'll be doing that right after the Christmas holiday. Bruin Bible, we are.